Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Fardy, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. On a cold and grey Abbey Street morn, I got to sit down with director Cal McChrystal, who brought with him all the warmth of his trademark charm and good humour he's become known for in rehearsal for Lennox Robinson's drama at Inish. Cal talks about the pride and delight he takes in making people laugh, balancing the light and darker shades of comedy and having the audience sitting on his shoulder. He talks about an Irish childhood on the move, being the eternal outsider and recognising himself when he visits home. We talk about the complexities of comedy, the freedom of directing and his phenomenal success with creatures great and small, from Paddington Bear to Cats to Spider-Man 2, from the mighty Bush to One Man, Two Governors and the incredible cast of Drama at Inish. Enjoy this podcast. Cal McChrystal, we are just under two weeks away from opening night and all the sounds in the rehearsal room are of laughter, so that's a good sign. I have the sense that you are itching to get on stage and start teching. Yeah, we all are, um, because we've had the most luxurious um, rehearsal period. Like we had, we had seven weeks in all or something like that, so we've done about five weeks so far. And um, I started feeling that the, the, the production was getting kind of fully cooked about a week and a half ago but actually it's worked out really well to have the extra bit of time which felt like extra time because um the way i work is to i block the play which means you know i could tell everyone where to stand and when to come in and all the rest of it um i do that quite quickly in the first week the first few days actually and then after that i just run and run and run uh, working as I go, adding different layers, lots and lots of layers go in, lots of jokes go in. So having the extra time has meant that uh, I've been able to add a few extra layers. And when you come on that first day of rehearsal, you come with your homework done, I would think. Do you go through the script with a fine-tooth comb and, and check all the comedic possibilities, or do you wait until you have uh, the actors on their feet in the rehearsal room to discover such things? Um, I do. I don't actually do very much research. I have to say, the only thing I really can do is read uh, the script a few times, and some things come to mind. But and I'm I'm really I'm an actor's director rather than a writer's director. So um, until you actually start working with the people that are going to be in the play, you don't know what's possible. And I tend to. I shouldn't say this, but I tend to try and make the play fit the actors rather than the other way around. So um, I, I might have a few physical gags in mind, but the real fun starts when I'm in the room with everyone and we are experimenting a bit and working out, would this work? What would it be like if she said it like this or he said it like that? Or you know, uh, And that, that inspiration to make it funny comes from working with the actors. And how do you draw that kind of performance from an actor who may not be... Um a physical actor, uh, and with your experience and your background, do you do you uh, show that? Do you demonstrate that? Or I do actually. I do. I mean, I do demonstrate a lot of the physical stuff because most actors aren't really all that physical. They'll have some stagecraft and all the rest, but most of them haven't trained in physical comedy or acrobatics or slapstick. They wouldn't be part of your the, the kind of standard training. So, and I find the easiest way to, to share an idea is actually to demonstrate it. And when I was directing, um, I was a physical comedy director on One Man, Two Governors, um, which is, so it was a very famous um, comedy the National Theatre did with James Corden a few years ago, and it went to the West End, went to Broadway. And there was a part um, uh, of a very, very old waiter he kept tumbling down the stairs. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this old waiter was played by a very good actor, brilliantly inventive, uh, but was initially timid about doing some of the stunts. So I would demonstrate them over and over and over again in order that he felt safe. But I was black and blue. I didn't tell anyone, but I was. You mentioned James Corden. I, I often wonder whatever happened to him, you know, whatever became of him. Oh, I know. His career just kind of went downhill after that, didn't it? <laughs> With the title of director rather than uh, comedy consultant or comedy director or associate director... With that title comes a freedom to pursue your vision of the play, and with great freedom comes great responsibility. I don't. I actually. I. I don't do those jobs anymore that involve me working with another director because it actually almost always ends in tears. Um, and looking back, I mean, Nick Heitner was the director of One Man Two Governors, and looking back, um, I would say that it was a, a it was a successful partnership and. He is a big enough person. He gave me a lot of um, 
freedom to do what I wanted to do. It wasn't the physical aspect. It was a very physical production, and the physical aspect of it was not within his field. So he was able to sort of say, look, I don't know how to do this stuff. You go, you do it. And I ended up directing quite a lot of that production. But at the time, it was terribly painful because there was locking of horns and there was the different kind of status. You know, obviously he was... you know, director of the National Theatre. And so, and a, a couple of other times when I have done a kind of more of an associate role as physical comedy director, it's always ended badly for my relationship with the, with that other director because I know what I do. I'm very, very strong-willed. I know what works. And I can't have somebody saying, mm, I don't think that's going to work because if they knew about comedy, what the hell am I doing there? So... I don't do those anymore, and um, and before I ever took those roles, you know, I was I'd been a director for, you know, I don't know, twelve years or something. So I've just, and I still get offered, oh, come in and make my show funny, and I always say no now, um, and I prefer the freedom and responsibility of, um, of directing my own shows because that's where you actually get the most freedom. I've just made this show in um, Las Vegas. A, a big kind of variety show, um, very sexy, very funny, um, with acrobatic acts and and um, comedians and stuff, and it's 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 a great show. And yes, I would love to. I'd love for my mind to have been more free to think of gags. All the all the things the director has to think of can sometimes get in the way of making gags, but not so with this play. That's the thing, because the play and the cast of Drama Tinish inspire me every single day. I mean, every single time we do a run, I get more ideas about little funny bits and little details and fine comic tuning. And in a way, my partner in all this is the writer. And that is that is lovely because, in fact, Lennox Robinson has given us an absolutely beautiful comic masterpiece, which I have, I have tweaked because it was written you know, 80, 90 years ago, whatever it was, and um, 1933, I can't do math, but work it out. Um, and uh, so we've tweaked it and we've, we've, we've updated it a bit, but we're, we've stayed absolutely true to the spirit of it, and it's terribly funny. When I look at the Lennox Robinson on the Abbey Theatre Archives uh, page, there seems to be, seem to have done 40 or something plus listings of it. Now, I knew of the play, but I have to say I didn't know the play very well. It's a tale of a sleepy town in Ireland that is unearthed by a group of travelling players and the powerful parallel worlds of the plays that they bring with them. So, Cal, do you have a choice there? There's a dark side present in, in that play, and is there ever a temptation to tone down those dark bits or, or wind them up? Well, that's, that's very interesting, you should ask, because I think when I first read the play, before I'd, before I'd um, started work on it, I worried that I would do what I do sometimes do with dark comedies, and that is to turn them into light comedies, because I'm so in love with the audience laughing that I'm kind of, I'm loath to, 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 for that to stop for any reason in particular, apart from um, a carefully placed piece of pathos about two-thirds of the way through, which I always think uh, is very satisfying for everybody. Um, and so I think when, when I started working on this, we were just looking for all the comic opportunities, looking for all the characterizations that would... and bringing out characteristics in people that would make the audience laugh, would amuse everybody. But the play does pull you in both directions, and quite rightly. And I've kind of fallen in love with all the dark stuff as well in this play. So... And I think while I have ramped up the comedy a lot... I mean, I think there will be more laughs in this production than than you'd expect. Um, There's also, I think, more darkness than is suggested in the play, Um, because a lot of the a lot of the uh, the dark elements in drama at Inish, we are told that they've happened to McCluskey the butcher or Jim Clancy, or you hear about these things, and I've actually by just by the way I've worked on some of the scenes, have brought more of that darkness actually into the room. And there are quite a few absolute pin drop moments. And including some moments, I think, and I really love these perhaps the most, where you're 
where it's tragedy and comedy at exactly the same time. So you're laughing without wanting to laugh. And uh, so this this play, I think we've we've really pushed the we've pushed the um, I won't say tragedy, but I'll say passion. We've pushed the passion in this, and we've also pushed the comedy a long way. So it's a very very fruity show. Having seen a, a very early run through of it, um, I think it must have been last week or maybe the week before, I was taken aback at how you allowed some of those more serious scenes to sit, you know, and and not ramp it up with laughter or. I just remember Helen Norton's face and reaction to in a certain scene. You really do have a job to balance the light and the dark in it. Yeah, Helen is is the most fantastic and versatile actress and she's playing such a kind of loud, boisterous, happy-go-lucky character that, of course, it's heartbreaking when you see someone like that hurt, um, emotionally hurt, which is what happens in this scene. Um, that isn't actually in the original play I've just I mean that that the scene is there but the way we're doing it is is uh, is something p- uh, particular to this production and it's very effective we've had a few people like yourself people from the building come in and people have had tears in their eyes in that point and it's absolutely right that they do because we need the audience need to see the real effect not just hear about it but the real effect that this um, traveling theatre company who are very benign. They're they're just traveling around doing Eastern European plays. But the the drama in these plays is bringing things out in this, as you say, sleepy community and making everybody behave very strangely. It, it does catch you unawares. Um, you reference the idea that your objective is usually to make the audience laugh wherever you can. Is there anything that comedy shouldn't touch? or that you wouldn't touch or that you wouldn't find funny to make funny? Well, I mean, there's lots of things I don't find funny that other people do. And it's hard to put your finger on why. I mean, comedy is so subjective. And it's very hard to put your finger on why you like some things and not other things. I mean, for instance, I'm not a great Monty Python fan. And people absolutely gasp. I'm not an Alan Partridge fan. You know, I kind of have my own thing that I do. And I think my... My great um, inspiration, really, I think, one of my inspirations has been Mel Brooks. I mean, I also love Harold Lloyd and Laurel and Hardy and all the rest of it, but I absolutely love Mel Brooks. I love the early Pink Panther films. I love the Marx Brothers. So those might, so I'm not, you know, those aren't English, those things I mentioned. They're not. They're American or whatever. One of my oldest shows, and it was my kind of flagship show for a while, this show called Spy Monkeys Cooped, and it was performed by this wonderful British uh, clown troupe. Um, and I've directed most of their shows. And this one was kind of it was kind of, it was kind of a gothic romance novella on stage, but it was a bit kind of the play that went wrong sort of thing. But long before the, those guys um, uh, did their versions, um, and there's there were some dream sequences in it. Uh, now this show is now it's twenty years old now, but it's just gone on tour in in the US uh, with the same cast it's a very uh, physical show and they were they were 30 when I wrote the show for them and they're 50 now so they are struggling um, but there were a couple of there were a couple of dream sequences in the in the show originally that I've cut because of modern sensibilities I mean I'll tell you what they are uh, one of them was a dream sequence it was a clown routine a very very kind of almost generic circus clown routine um, where they were hitting each other in the face and kicking each other up the bum and, you know, general shouting and buckets of water and all the rest of it. But they were all dressed as Hasidic Jews. Now, there was nothing malign in the idea of that. In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the actors was Jewish and I invited the Jewish Chronicle to see our preview way back and they put us on the front cover and just said, oh, this is the funniest, funniest. So... And it was very clear the way we were doing it. No one, has ever take, no one ever took offence. And, you know, we got a lot of Jewish people coming and see it. There was another scene, and this probably is a little even less PC, which was a kind of Chinese scene. Um, and when the show first went to Canada, um, and I went with it because it was early days, we went to Calgary in, in um, Alberta, and um, the, uh, the artistic director of the theatre there saw a run-through and said, um, oh, that... that 
that Chinese scene, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's really racist. And I mean, it absolutely wasn't. And I said, no, I don't want to cut anything. And he said, but we've got a big Chinese community here. And I said, but well, do they come to the theatre? And he said, yes, they do. And I said, well, I'll tell you, if one single Chinese person complains about this, I will cut it without any further question. But I'm telling you, they will laugh the hardest. And they did. And I, I sat in the audience and watched. And, you know, I've got this theory that everyone loves a mention. You know, and I'm, you know, the one thing about Mel Brooks is that in, I think, every single film of his, there is a completely unacceptable, you know, in quotes, stereotypical camp gay character. And Mel Brooks isn't gay. He hasn't any license to do that. But they're my favourite characters in the movie because everyone likes a mention. So, but I have cut the Chinese scene from Cooped, and I've cut the scene with the, the Hasidic Jews as well, but I've replaced them with a scene with Mother Teresa, um, which <laughs> is still edgy, um, but um, it's, I think, it's a, it's a slightly less sensitive issue at the moment. Well, when you, when you talk about, I suppose you're talking about your audience there, and having seen that run through up in the rehearsal room a while ago, what is always missing from those run-throughs is the audience en masse. How much do you work with c considering that audience and, and do you have an audience in mind? Because I always feel that you break a fourth wall when you work with your work. Yes. Well, I have. I think that's the one thing. I mean, if I had to put my finger on what is my major ability as a director, if I have one, um, and that is... I don't have a message. I'm not trying to, I don't, as I've already said, I don't have, I'm not on a mission to interpret the writer exactly as he wanted. The one thing I think I have is I have got the audience sitting on my shoulder every single minute of rehearsal. And I just can feel what they want, how much they want, whether it's going to make them laugh, when they want it. So... That I'm just very, very sensitive to the audience. I was an actor for a long time, and I, I only ever did comedy, and you you, you develop a real sense of, uh, I suppose, a, a sense of timing, and, and I love to make them laugh. I love it more than anything in the world, and I think a lot of people that have that started out with me as directors or whatever have moved on to storytelling or doing Greek drama or something like that, but I've never fallen out of love with making the audience laugh. It's what I absolutely, professionally, what I absolutely live for. Let's bring it back home. You're the Irishman abroad who has come home. Your Irish identity is very important to you. It is, it is. And I think, um, I think it's, I think it's one of those things like, uh, they say there's no Scot like a border Scot. You know what I mean? The, the, the people that live on the borders, uh, uh, Scottish borders, they're the ones with the bagpipes on the roof and the whole thing. And I think coming from the north and from a nationalist family in the north, I think I've, you know, the Irishness that people might take for granted down here isn't taken for granted up there. It was, certainly wasn't when I was growing up. And, um, and also, you know, I was born uh, at a time when uh, any advertisement for a job in the Belfast Telegraph would have NCNA afterwards, no Catholic need apply. And um, so, you know, I was kind of, I was, uh, I was aware of that politics. Um, and, you know, my family would never wear poppies and this kind of thing. So it was kind of a, we eventually settled in England after going to America. We came back, settled in England. But, you know, my friends are English and I love living there. It's great, I live in London. Um, but I've always, and also just culturally, we moved around and when you take a, a family, it's my parents and three brothers, uh, two brothers, sorry, the three of us, you take us out of our very close-knit um, suburban Belfast uh, environment and we travel around, you take that culture with you and you hang on to it. Um, and you can see that in other ethnicities, um, you know, around the world that... People will gather in, you know, the, 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 uh, an Indian woman won't immediately ditch her sari when she moves to Belfast. You know, you keep your culture. And I've always done that. And I've always always felt as well that, uh, you know, we had all our, all our, I had every single birthday. I have an August birthday of my life in, in, uh, in, in Ireland, uh, you know, till I was 18 or 19 or something. So 
um, uh, so we and we always called it home and my family in Belfast would say oh when are you coming home and they still say that you know I'm 60 um, and they say you know my aunt will say when are you coming home so um, and, and I and I like that and I, I, I think of it like uh, just on that uh, we're talking about the Belfast Telegraph my, my father was a journalist I mean, he's retired now uh, they're coming over for the opening night my mum and dad and I'm going to be very proud to show them this, uh, this play but uh, my name is actually Cahill and my dad's name is Cahill as well but he would not have been able to get his job as chief reporter on the Belfast Telegraph at the young age of 24 with that Irish name. So he changed the spelling to Cal, which is a very neutral name because it could be short for Calvin or whatever, um, and was, was, was able to get the job there. And, um, and so I spell my name like his, and that's why, that's why I'm, I'm uh, Cal. So I suppose that then leads on to the question of your parents are coming to see your production on the uh, on the Abbey stage, the National Theatre of Ireland. What does that mean to you and your family? Well, it's hugely significant. I mean, my parents have been to my opening night to the Royal Shakespeare Company, the English National Opera, the Royal National Theatre. But um, this might be the the proudest um, they'll be because it's there are roots involved, and it just it does seem like a homecoming. Um, and Graham, uh, Graham McLaren nearly had me in tears on the first day when he said, um, welcome to your National Theatre. Um, and uh, I, was, I, was, um, I was very touched because I visited here when I was a child and we spent some time in Dublin. And, and it does feel that um, I am a visitor. I, I, you know, I'm not under any... Uh, um, I, you know, make no mistake, I understand I'm a visitor here, but it does feel significant and um, I feel at home here. I, I recognise myself in the people I see um, when I'm in Ireland, both north and south. I just recognise myself in the people around me and I, that doesn't happen for me anywhere else. Do you feel that when you are home here that you have to prove those credentials? Um, well, it's, uh, yes, I mean, in a way, you kind of are at a slight cultural disadvantage when you come back to the place where you've always said you belong. And actually, you're not really as Irish as all the other people because they've spent their whole lives here and they're all talking about little towns around Dublin and having a laugh at people's accents and things. And I, I can't tune into that as easily. But while I'm here, I'm lapping all this stuff up and I would love to come back and do more here because I've absolutely loved it. Cal, can I ask you then, with all that moving around with your father's work uh, from Belfast to London to New Jersey, back to the UK and then the world, that moving about early on, were you always the new kid um, in the class and did that make you eager to fit in or were you very comfortable being the outsider? Um, oh, that's a great question, um, because I think um, there's no doubt that um, that it has a big effect on you if you move away, if you don't stay in the one place that you were born. Uh, if you move away, it does have an effect on you. And yes, I was the outsider. I mean, I came to I went to school in London for a couple of years. I had an Irish accent. I then moved to America. I had an English accent. I then moved back to London. I had an American accent. And so, and so yes, I was always the outsider. Um, and that, of course, I think that affects my work as well because I, you, you get an idea of looking at things from the outside. And also you get to, you get to um, uh, a new school and everyone's got this shared sense of humour and you've desperately got to try and work out what that is and fit in with it. And I suppose that's become part of my armour as well as a, as, a, as a director who specialises in comedy, is that I suppose I, I spent my life trying to please people in a new environment. And that is what... Um, that's kind of what a comedy director does. 
So yes, it did. It did. It was fine. It was you know we had uh, I had my family and it was hard to make friends certainly in the early earlier years because you kind of made friendships and then suddenly oh those people were gone and then when you came back I came back to London all my friends were friends with other people and you had to start again and um, so yeah that 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 did have an effect it was it was it was um, an advantage and a disadvantage for all the obvious reasons and was there a moment say in your upbringing when you were younger was there a moment that you realized that you were funny and that you could make people laugh uh, I don't remember being funny actually when I was a child but uh, the friends of mine that I've uh, picked up a, a, a again from school on Facebook and they've always said oh you were so funny but I don't really remember being funny I remember trying to be funny and um, I remember being very lively a very lively and probably very annoying child and even now I don't I like to make people laugh but I would never go oh I'm so funny because um, if you ever feel that funny you probably would stop trying and then the creativity... Well, I don't know. I don't really know how it works, actually. You don't consider yourself funny? Yeah, I suppose... No, I mean, I'm funny in the pub. You know, I, I'm, I'm funny in the pub, yeah, and I know that I make um, funny shows, but I think my funniness comes out of um, an absolute joy of being around people uh, and and the effervescence that you feel and the bubbliness and buoyancy that you feel when you're uh when there's when you know there's a bit of crack on offer you know in the pub and you just go oh my god you know we're going to have a fun night and and um yeah i i i um yeah but i suppose no i mean i i i obviously i i obviously um uh, do I, I can make people laugh and I enjoy that. So, yeah, I suppose I'm funny. <laughs> well, do you view the world? Uh, do you see the comic possibility? Um, is that how you view the world in funny terms? Yes, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I'm a very political person, so I don't think everything's funny. But but I do. I, I, I will. I will. Uh, I will see funny things in people that maybe they don't know that's what's funny about them. I, I see funny things in people, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite good at helping them access it and, and, and um, produce it, you know. Um, and I do think, you know, um, if I'm at a party, yeah, I'm, I'm there, to, I'm there to, to look for the laughs and see the funny things that could happen. And I, I think I've also got a very good memory. I mean, I just remember everything that ever happened to me and everything that I ever saw. I don't know why. I was terrible at school, but because my memory doesn't extend to academic stuff, but I've got a very good memory socially. So I've got this kind of enormous big vat inside me of ideas and things that I thought, well, that'd be funny on stage. And every now and again, you do a play and you can get some of them out and put it in the play. I mean, the, the, my shows are full of me, um, as well as being full of the the actors who are in them, and maybe a bit of the writer if he or she is lucky. Are you the funny one in your family? You know the way families work and there's usually, I'm not going to say hierarchy, I got in trouble with that before, but there's usually a place in the family and there's the funny one and the serious one. Or Were you the funny one? Or or, or are, are you a fu well, if funny I'd family? Well, if I said <clears throat> that I was the funny one in my family and my brothers heard this, they would say, no, you weren't. I was the funniest one. They'd both say that. Um, and, um, yeah, but my, my bro I think all of us were in this, uh, moving around a lot. We're all in the same position where we had to make friends easily. And actually, my brothers and I are very, we're quite competitive with each other. And we get on very well. And they, they both have uh, children who are very dear to me. And, you know, and uh, we're very lucky to, you know, for our parents are still uh, around and healthy. And, um but I think we are competitive with each other, um, so I'm not going to give them any compliments. <laughs> that natural leap, though, was it a natural leap for you to pursue acting? Yes, it was. I remember my granny saying to me, my nana, saying to me um, when I was a child, because she'd said to me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd said a clown. And she was absolutely horrified by this, because why wasn't I saying something more sensible like a you know an astronaut or a or, or a fireman or something but something more usual but um so I, I know that was there even then and then I read a I found it in my parents loft of uh, about 
30 years ago, I found this magazine, a uh, school magazine from when I was at school in uh, New Jersey, and our class had all interviewed each other, and it said... Uh, one of the questions to me was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd said a comedian. And I'd completely forgotten that I'd said that. And I must have been about eight. So, and it was, it was really, it was incredible to find that because I thought, God, that, you know, that was there. That was it. This isn't some whim that I fell upon when I was looking for something to do after leaving school and I happened to do, no, it was absolutely in me from birth. And, uh, why? I, I'm not sure, but it, it was absolutely there. And there was nothing else I could think of doing apart from acting. And I loved being an actor. Um, and I had an OK time. You know, I was out of work, you know, as much as actors are out of work. Um, I worked more than some, less than others. Um, but I couldn't imagine wanting to do anything else. And then I got dragged into directing. And now I love this. Just one last question that occurs to me, um, just around the family thing. Your father... Calma Crystal is the journalist and the writer and I'm aware that he wrote a book about his father um, a reflection on a quiet rebel and that was a reflection of a father through a son's eyes I'm kind of going down a, a Seamus Heaney kind of digging route here mm-hmm. do you kind of find an understanding of your parents and of yourself through your work, is there a way into that when, when you're doing comedy is there a way to express that <clears throat> uh, no <laughs> I think that I'm not really looking for myself for a start. I'm not looking for myself. There are bits in all my work. There's bits of, as I said, there's bits of things I know. And I'm very familiar with my family. And there are bits of my family even in this show. There's little tiny references that probably nobody, maybe even my family wouldn't recognise if they came. Well, it's, I think, you know, talking about my, my, my dad's book... Um, about his father, who was a you know a absolute genius and a wonderful grandfather. I mean, um, and he, uh, my my grandfather, he had a lot to do with stimulating our imaginations when we were kids. I mean, he was we absolutely you know I never believed in God, but I did believe in fairies because you know my grandfather, if we weren't going on a walk with him, he'd go out before we arrived and poke pennies into the dry stone wall. And then when we got to the wall on the walk, he'd say, oh, you know, apparently this is where the fairies hide their money. And then we'd find these pennies, and ab- this was evidence as far as I was concerned. You know, he was a great person. He spoke seven languages. He taught Gaelic. I've got his fonio, which I'm not allowed to wear because I don't speak Irish. Reading my dad's book, of course you learn about, you, you learn about yourself in your roots and where you come from. This might be a, a peculiar question considering your formal training at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, but... At what point did you take yourself seriously as an actor? Uh, I, 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 I don't think I ever did. I mean, they certainly never took me seriously at the um, Royal Scottish Academy. Um, I was always given... I was always given sort of like comedy character parts and things like that, which I really enjoyed playing. But I always dreamed that, um, you know, I'd get... You know, they'd be casting Hamlet and they'd say, you know, Carl would be good at that. But they never, ever did. Um, And I don't think they I don't think they took me very seriously. And so then when I went into the profession and I I got a lot of work very soon after leaving drama school, television series and rep theatre. And and, um, I was proud of having that work. But I was also slightly pinching myself thinking, God, me, somebody gave me a job doing this. And I was very great. I always felt that I won uh, the work that I got rather than was handed it because I deserved it. I, I always felt that I I kind of... It was a race and that I'd somehow won. And um, so I, ne- I, I took my work very seriously in that I would get very upset if I thought I wasn't going to be good or if I was going to let people down. But I've never... I've, I've always been a very light-hearted performer. I mean, you would never cast me as, you know... Uh, submarine commander you know I mean I just that I would never get cast in that role whereas I did you know I easily got cast in a lot of TV commercials playing young funny husbands or comedy barman or the kindly uncle or the quirky Jacques Tati character or whatever Uh, so no I was always very light uh, on the stage, and I remember once uh, when I was at the Royal Scottish Academy, the, the final production we did, we did we did a, um, <clears throat> a double bill of Comedy of Errors 
and Titus Andronicus. And I had one of the lead parts in Comedy of Errors, but a very small role in Titus Andronicus, a character I can't remember what he's called, but he happened to have the last line of the show. And Titus Andronicus is a big bloodbath at the end, and they all stab each other and... I think there's children eaten in pies and, I mean, it's it, 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 it's it's complete bloodbath. And it ended up with everyone dead on the stage. We were doing it at the Theatre Royal in Glasgow. Everyone's dead on the stage. And I was standing there in a taffeta um, uh, uh, toga. And I had to intone this kind of last line before the curtain came down. And the audience were all kind of... Uh, sitting there absolutely startled and speechless after all these murders... And then I gave my line and the whole house roaring with laughter as the curtain came down. And the curtain would hit the floor and all my classmates would get up and start, like, shaking me. Why are you we're working so hard? How dare you? How dare you ruin it for us? And I was going, I'm trying to do it really seriously. You know, and so the next night I'd try it differently. And no matter how I said that line, it would get a massive laugh. And was there a turning point anywhere there around then that you gave yourself permission to to be funny or yes I tell you exactly when that was that was when my friend Sally said to me let's go and do a clowning course and um, we went to work with a um, this wonderful teacher from Switzerland called Pierre Bilon and um, he and I, I wasn't terribly funny in his uh, it kind of working with him for a couple of weeks kind of seemed to confirm my worst fears that I wasn't actually all that funny. But a few people said to me, I had my moments though, um, and I remember him saying to me in front of the class, he said, uh, this guy um, is very, very interested in the audience, and that's a wonderful thing. And then everyone started saying I should go and work with Philippe Gollier, who is a, an absolutely wonderful clown master, and he's trained... Sasha Baron Cohen and Emma Thompson and, uh, you know, I mean, absolutely, he's a wonderful teacher. He works in Paris. And I studied with him and I, I got on very well with him and was his protégé for a while. And he said, I'd like to direct you in a show. And, and he said, basically, all the things that he praised me for were exactly the things that the Royal Scottish Academy told me was terrible about me. Um, and um, so that was a kind of... Uh, a bit of an awakening, really. Um, and I was able to study with him uh, under scholarship from him for a while, um, meanwhile going off and doing my acting jobs as well. And then we did this show um, called The End of the Tunnel, uh, which was a clown show. Um, and uh, it, it was a difficult show to do. It, it, was, it was one of those shows where there was no real material in it. It was just kind of come on and be funny for an hour without really doing anything and... Um, and it didn't when it did work it was the funniest thing anyone had ever seen but 80% of the time it didn't work and people wanted to kill us afterwards I mean it just it wasn't a good show Um, but I did okay out of it and people were coming to me other clowns and saying will you come and direct our clown show and eventually um, I said yes and that's how my directing career started and I always look at that I always look back on that as my version of, you know, the comedians always say, um, well, of course, I, I, you know, before I was famous, I was dying in the northern working men's clubs for four years. That's my version of that was that show, because it was so hard to come on and be funny with without good material, because we didn't have good material in the show. Um, and now my clown shows I make are full of good material. I make sure they are. I absolutely fill them with routines and things we've worked very hard on and detail and stuff just so that you've got something that is surefire is a surefire uh, hit for the audience that night you have achieved incredible success across a range of disciplines theater film circus opera from edinburgh festival to west end to broadway to vegas i doubt any of the successes came easy but on which production would you say you learned the most a successful one or one perhaps like those ones that you triumphed over adversity? As a director, um, I've got a very soft spot in my heart for all the shows I've done. I love all of them. And all of them, um, whether or not they went on to make money, whether or not they went on to um, run for a long time, 
all of them, I think, were successful in that I don't think the audience ever left saying that was that wasn't funny. Um, they all had something to to offer. There are some shows of mine that I wish more people had seen because I might have done it in a, a British repertory theatre and the, the standard run is three weeks and then it's finished. Um, but certainly, the learning the learning curve is is always there. Uh, but I, I, you know, and I'm nervous about this show because although the actors are very confident that people will really like it and we're all so excited to get the audiences in. Um, and based on my long experience, I'm also, I do know what makes people laugh and I'm absolutely sure that um, that people will, will like this. But there's always that little nagging doubt where you go, oh, supposing, supposing... Um, there's an attitude to it, or supposing um, it's just not what Dubliners want at this time of year, or you know what I mean. You just you worry about these other things that. But I'm I'm not worried about whether it's funny or not because because um, I find it very funny, and my experience tells me that if I find something funny, the audience usually do as well. Will you listen to that audience in those previews? Uh, and, and tweak it accordingly. Yes, of course. And the previews are hugely valuable. I mean, we've done as much as we can in the rehearsal room now. Tomorrow we start a technical rehearsal. And techs are always very stop-start as the, as, as the backstage people are learning how to work the show. It's the first time we've worked. The, so the set, there's actually, for a play that lasts just over two hours, we've got probably about 16 hours in order to do this one big technical rehearsal. And then after that is the dress rehearsals. Um, <clears throat> but the um, during the tech, I'm always hopping up and down and saying, try this, try that. The previews are particularly useful, though, because then you're actually getting the um, proper feedback from the other member of the cast. And that other member of the cast is the audience. And once you've got them, then you've got your whole cast together. You've got the whole... The, the, the party is complete. And so then, of course, you can adjust. You can say, oh, OK, that would get a bigger laugh if you left that little pause before there. Or why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? Or that's not getting a laugh, but it will if you do it like this. Um, or, or even sometimes, look, I don't think we should get a laugh there because that's leading up to something where I want them to stop laughing and think about this. Uh, so all those tweaks, it's, uh, the, uh, the note sessions after the previews, uh, certainly in One Man, Two Governors, were hugely valuable because um, I think with that show none of the actors or Nicholas Heitner thought it was going to be that funny and I knew it was I just knew and so there was this kind of I think the first preview everybody was shocked and they were all speaking over the laughs you couldn't hear half the dialogue because they, in fact the writer said to me your laughs are drowning out all my best lines but so you can use those previews to just finesse the timing. And also, I get loads of ideas. I get loads of extra ideas when I'm sitting there with the audience and they're all laughing. I get more idea. I get more funny ideas because that laughter kind of inspires me. So the play, we've it's done, it's finished. If we put it on and I got run over by a bus tomorrow, I think it would still be hilarious and very, very funny, or a tram, I should say, in Dublin. But... Um, but no, there's still more work to do. Um, somebody once said, a play is never finished, merely abandoned. And I'm like that. And because some of my shows go for years and years and years, I mean, this show I've just done in Vegas, they've signed a 30-year lease on the theatre for this show. You know, um, so, um, and of course, you know, I look forward, I love having shows that run and run because then I can go back and visit them and make little adjustments and... and um, uh, the actors will go, oh, God, here he comes, and we're going to have to change it again. But this this will never be set in aspic because it's a comedy, and it'll grow and evolve, and uh, I, I can't wait for people to see it. I really can't. When you talk of the nerves, does the nerve, does the, the nerve level fluctuate when you mention it with Inish? Uh, is it di any different uh, when you work with something like Cirque du Soleil when you have, like, a 60-something million... Uh, dollar budget um, yeah does the nerves uh, do you get do you gain a confidence after each success or is there more pressure after each success um, you do well it's both isn't it I mean I do I do gain uh, no I don't I the pressure thing 
I, I don't allow myself to feel the pressure because I, in my heart of hearts, I think to myself, well, I'm not really a director, you see. I'm an actor who people have asked to direct this. And so it's not my fault if it doesn't work. I mean, I, I can't get away with thinking that anymore. But certainly um, with the Cirque du Soleil, um, I had never done a circus before I worked for Cirque du Soleil. Um, in fact, now I, I do a lot of circus, and in particular I work for a company called Gifford Circus, um, who are the most beautiful circus, I think, in the world, um, and certainly in Britain. Um, it's a kind of lovely um, 1930s feel sort of village green circus. And there's a tribute to Giffords in this show. Um, and I sent some photographs of the the particular reference to my boss, Nell, and she was absolutely delighted. Um, but with Cirque du Soleil, you know, I, my first show I did for them as comedy director, I went in, it's a 3,000-seater tent, 3,000 seats in the round. And their, their, their aesthetic is very particular. And, and their clowns are usually not funny at all, and I had to make funny things for them. And there was a huge pressure... With that, because yes, it was a big budget, and um, and because also they're very ruthless, Cirque du Soleil, and if your clowns aren't funny, they will fire them. So I felt pressure for that, um, and in fact, I happened to make um, routines that were very well received for them by the skin of my teeth. I think, um, not before they put me through absolute hell, screaming at me that I wasn't funny and that the clowns weren't funny, and they were going to fire the clowns. And I just said, just wait till the audience comes in, and. And if the audience don't laugh, I'll be the first to hand you back the salary and say, I've failed. But just wait for the audience, because they were the ones who'll decide what's funny, not you. This is me to the billionaire boss of the circus. And he did have the courage to let me put it in front of an audience, and the audience loved it. Um, so the pressure, I mean, I do feel pr I do quite a lot of film work now as well. Um, I did the comedy on the Paddington movies, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the new Cats movie, The Dictator, The Good Guys, uh, uh, The World's End. I mean, a lot of movies I've done now. And I do feel a lot of pressure when I go in there because schedule very, uh, they're very tight. And so you do, you'll get a director just kind of, OK, come up with something funny right now. You've got five minutes. And I don't find that particularly conducive. I mean, I kind of always manage to do it, but I find it really painful as well. And it's something I really only do for the dosh, I have to be honest. Um, although, then the payoff is, it's really lovely to see your name in the rolling credits at the end of a big movie. It really is. Um, and some of the movies I do enjoy. I mean, I love doing Spider-Man 2 because I loved working with Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. I loved working with the, the director, Mark Webb, which is a great name for someone directing a Spider-Man movie. Um, I loved doing the Paddington movies with my old friend Paul King, who was directing them. And I had a lot of input into those Paddington movies. I do the motion capture, a lot of the motion capture for the bear himself. I created quite a lot of the big physical comedy routines that there are in the movie um, and uh, so uh, those ones I liked but some of the ones are, are um, uh, I just I kind of turn up and do my job and go and I hate that because I you know I like to um, but it comes back to that thing of me not being in charge I think and I just have a lot more fun when I've got all the actors to myself and I can do my have my wicked way with all of them you know I keep mentioning the word success uh, keep peppering this with success. I was very you know, kind. Success. I wish I, I, well, wish I what, felt successful. But. Well, that's it. What does success mean to you? And, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, but it feels as if you have uh, an imposter syndrome. Do you ever shake that? Um, I don't always have it. I, I don't always have the imposter syndrome. It, 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 it just it creeps in on those jobs where the jobs that you have asked the universe to give you, the jobs that make you feel apprehensive and scared and then you get there and then you feel uh, but uh, you know after a couple of after you come up with a couple of good ideas that kind of goes I think but to be honest I think I do have a craving to be recognized legitimately I mean I would love I'd love you know this is why this job was so important to me because it's the National Theatre of Ireland it's the Abbey Theatre I can't tell you how how uh, you know this was in my top three bucket list once you know I wanted to do an Irish play at the Abbey you know I also want to do an, a farce at the Old Vic you know I want to be invited back to the National to do a show so um, 
Do you think there's a snobbery towards I do. comedy? I must say, I do think there's a snobbery towards comedy, certainly from the national. I mean, that One Man, Two Governors, you know, which I am rightly credited for making a success, made £30 million pounds for the national. It was the fastest-selling play in the history of the West End and the most successful comedy in the history of the National Theatre. And I haven't been asked back because I think... I think they think, oh, no, Cal, no, 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 no. Oh, he'll make it too funny. Oh, no, he'll make it much too funny. And, that, of course, that's a huge compliment in a way, but a compliment's only nice if it gets you the job. I think the only way you can stay in this ridiculously difficult business is if you still are ambitious. And there's a way of being ambitious without, you know, walking all over your granny to get the job. You know what I mean? And I, uh, you know, you, you try to be generous to the people around you and you try to have a, a you know, not be jealous of, of other people's success. And it's hard because, um, because, you know, you want those jobs too. But I think also because when I was an actor, because I had a... Because I never worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I was an actor. I never worked at the National when I was an actor. Um... And so now I kind of want to make up for that by being invited to those august institutions, you know. And I have worked for both of those things and made great successes with them, but I've been there as comedy director rather than the director. So that's the next kind of on my list because the Vegas things are going on. The operas, I do a lot of opera now. I'm going back to ENO to do another opera next year and, and yet another one, the English National Opera the year after. I'm going back to Vegas to do another show next year. Um, I'm, doing, I'm doing plays. I'm doing, in fact, I've got two operas next year and two the year after. So it's very nice to be, you know, the new kid on the block in the opera world. But I, I, I would like to, I, yeah, I still do have that craving to work in all those places that didn't take me when I was a young actor. There you are. Think, There's my heart on the sleeve. Well, I somehow think that you have already had the last laugh. Well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, I do, I must say, I have a very, I have a very, uh, I'm very lucky with my job. I think if you're making a living at all in this business, you consider yourself uh, on the top of the world. If you look back on your body of work, is there any moment that pleases you and brings a smile to your face because of its arrival to you and how it all played out? Um, this is going to sound a bit pat, but I'm hoping this will be it. You know, I mean, there have been lots of other moments. I mean, the the, the, the moments of triumph that come from, like I was talking about the first show I did with Cirque du Soleil and everyone thinking that it, the audience were going to hate my work and then hearing the roof of the tent lift off and that sustained laugh for the entire duration of the, the clown numbers. That's that. And, and the reception that One Man, Two Governors got on Broadway. And you you feel your two inches taller when you're walking down the road and that you really experience oh that I'm walking tall that's what that means this is what I'm doing and that kind of the delight I w I'll say pride as well because it is pride but the delight in 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 making people laugh is something that I just love and I'm hoping that this as I say, coming to uh, one of the august institutions that I've always admired, I'm hoping that I can have another success here. Cal, I better let you get back up to the rehearsal room. Oh, they're doing choreography, but I'll go and I'll chuck my tuppence in when I get up there. Thank you very much for giving me your time this Thank morning. Thank you, I really enjoyed that. Thank you.